Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. We all agree, especially in turbulent times, the ship of state needs a calm, steady, experienced hand at the helm. And that's just the opposite of what we have today with Donald Trump, a hothead with zero experience in foreign policy who acts on impulse no matter the consequences. What a contrast with all previous presidents, both Republican and Democrat, who, if they didn't know a lot about foreign policy, at least surrounded themselves with and listen to experts who did. Experts like Susan Rice, former Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs under President Clinton and former Ambassador to the United Nations and National Security Advisor for President Obama. Nobody knows the field of foreign policy better and nobody's spoken out more strongly about the danger posed by Donald Trump's reckless conduct of foreign affairs. Her new book is called Tough Love. I interviewed Ambassador Rice this week before an audience at the Hill Center on Capitol Hill in Washington. We have had many um, wonderful guests here at the Hill Center. We're really honored tonight to have a very special guest, uh, a great American, a Rhodes Scholar, who served uh, in the uh, Clinton administration as a special assistant uh, to the president for African affairs. I should also mention that it was Deputy Secretary of State also in Clinton. No, Assistant Secretary of State State for African Affairs. Uh, And then... You're promoting me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then in the uh, Obama administration, of course, serving as our uh, ambassador, United States ambassador to the United Nations, uh, and then as the national security advisor uh, in the White House. And Susan's new book, Tough Love. Uh, And I got to tell you, it's an amazing book and a really, really wonderful read for a couple of reasons. One is because it's a great account of United States foreign policy over the last couple of decades um, by someone who was in the room where it happened, (laughs) Uh, uh, very much of an insider and all the way through certainly the Clinton years, the Bush years, the Obama years, uh, and a lot of new stuff that I learned from it. That's one reason. The other uh, reason I found it so so um, compelling a read is because it is an amazingly candid look that Susan takes um, at herself, uh, at her parents, at her family, at the people she worked with, even uh, at her courtship and her marriage. Although Ian is in the front row tonight, so we assume that that all worked out pretty well. <laughs> Thankfully, yes. <laughs> but for all those reasons, uh, it's a great read, a tough, a tough love, and we welcome Susan Rice to the Hill Center. Thank you so much. So we always take a poll of the audience, uh, Susan, before we begin as to the number one question that they want asked. And uh, so the number one question tonight oh, is... Lord. 
you have a house in Maine. Why aren't you running for the U.S. Senate? <laughs> and is it too late to change your mind? Uh, where to begin? First of all, there is a wonderful woman named Sarah Gideon, who's a speaker of the House in Maine, who is running and who I think is very deserving uh, of our support. Um, that's one reason. Mm -hmm. And yes, I do think it's probably a little bit late. I thought about it, actually. Um, and I thought about it first and foremost from a personal perspective, uh, because for eight years uh, of my daughter's life, I was either living and working in New York City and trying to get home on the weekends or working in the White House and barely uh, able to get home uh, to see her and her older brother. And then of my son, who's five and a half years older than our daughter, he experienced uh, the latter half of the Clinton administration. <laughs> and uh, my priority, our priority, was really to be sure that if I was going to reconsider getting back into public service, that it was at a time that made sense for the kids in particular. And my daughter, our daughter, is a junior in high school. Uh, and this really was not the time either to uproot her or abandon her again. Uh, and so that was the first and foremost reason. There are other reasons as well. Um, I have, uh, we do have a house in Maine. It was my mother's house, my, my mother's family. The Dixons, as I write in the book, uh, were immigrants to Maine who came from Jamaica in 1912. And so our family history goes back over mm. 100 years in Maine, and most of it with a continuous uh, presence of our family there. But um, believe it or not, for all good reason also, Maine is uh, one of those states that's particularly sensitive to people who come from outside. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't count having uh, family ties, property, uh, summer residence, and you know, having spent all my childhood summers there. I haven't spent all of my adult and childhood years there, and that, uh, that counts for something not, up there. Not good enough. Huh? So I really want to dive into the book with you, but first, while you're here, um, there are some breaking news um, of the moment that we might talk a little bit about. How serious do you weigh the situation in Iran today? Did we escape a war? You wrote in the New York Times a few days ago that you didn't see any other way out except ending in war. Do you still believe that? Where are we today? Well, I said it's hard to, it's hard to envision how we get out of this. This was before, uh, after the killing of Soleimani and before the, um, the initial Iranian response. I'm very concerned still. Um, I, I think it was on balance as bad as Soleimani was a very ill-considered decision uh, to take that opportunity of, of the strike particularly to do it inside of Iraq and I think if you look at the consequences already uh, our interests have been substantially set back uh, we are under enormous pressure now to leave Iraq uh, on terms that are not favorable to um, our interests. And in fact, that was what Soleimani was trying to accomplish. He was primarily trying to get the United States out of Iraq and the wider region. We've had to suspend our fight against ISIS, which is the reason we're there in the first place. 
Uh, and that, too, is, um, I think, a, a very uh, important setback to our interests and our security posture. And then, of course, the Iranians have accelerated their steps to abrogate their responsibilities under the nuclear deal. Uh, and there's no uh, obvious route to stem that momentum or to um, or to find a way back now. And so that's deeply concerning. So on all three of those critical fronts, uh, directly as a result um, of the Soleimani strike, we're further from the ability to shore up our interests. And then, of course, uh, regrettably but predictably, um, we need to be prepared for the likelihood that the Iranians are far from done in their retaliation. Um, it will likely not, in the near term, take an overt form like the, uh, the very unusual acknowledgement by them of the, the missile strikes and using ballistic missiles coming out of Iran. But we're more likely to see more proxy attacks, cyber attacks, and potentially terrorist attacks against American targets, both military, diplomatic, and um, potentially civilian. So as somebody who's watched the region for quite a while, I, uh, I, I think we have to be braced for months, quite frankly, if not years, for uh, the possible manifestations of their retaliation. One would assume that were you in the White House as national security advisor with a different president, you would not have recommended or even given the option of assassinating Soleimani. Were you there today looking to move forward and somehow develop some kind of an ongoing relationship with Iran? What advice would you give to the president? There's a major contradiction in your question. No, that's right. <laughs> I understand. I, I didn't mean necessarily this president. <laughs> well, I mean, it really matters which president it is. True. Because if it's yes. this president, point. Uh, given his disdain for diplomacy and uh, his oft-demonstrated you know, willingness to walk away from commitments, uh, it's very hard to see how, um, in this, uh, under this president, there's any path to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Plus, you know, for all the political reasons, he's so disparaged the nuclear deal, even though he lacks any alternative to address the problem as effectively as the nuclear deal did. Uh, at least the, the the nuclear program itself, it didn't purport to deal with the other aspects mm -hmm. of our substantial concerns about Iran's behavior. I think it's very difficult. I mean, I hope that through various channels, there, there's the Swiss, there's potentially the French and the Japanese. Uh, there's an Iranian ambassador uh, in New York um, with whom we have had dialogue in the past. And as I write in Tough Love, early in the Obama administration, uh, it, I was asked to establish a secret channel uh, to the Iranian ambassador that this was long before we were into the negotiations on the nuclear deal. But to be able to pass messages directly. Um, and so that's another place where we could open a channel, discreetly or, or not discreetly. And the Iranian ambassador to the UN now, uh, Ravan Chi, was very much involved in the nuclear negotiations. So he's somebody who's substantively familiar with the, the issues at hand and plugged into 
uh, senior leadership back in Tehran. Is, you mentioned the nuclear deal several times. Is that really the undoing of the nuclear deal, pulling out the, where this whole present crisis began? I believe so. Uh, you know, we have had you know, long-standing concerns about Iran's support for terrorism's effort to destabilize neighboring states, its human rights record, all of that, its missile program. Those are all very real uh, and, and ongoing concerns. But we were able to mitigate the Iranian threat to allies, partners in the region, and particularly Israel, but the Gulf states and beyond because all of those threats that, that we still have to contend with are greatly exacerbated when Iran has nuclear weapons or the capacity to acquire them quickly. Um, when we pulled out without a plan B and put uh, crushing, crippling additional sanctions on unilaterally, not only did we alienate ourselves from our European partners and, and the others who had, had signed on to the deal, but we really boxed the Iranians in and gave them very few options. And yet for a year, they withheld any uh, reneging on their commitments and worked to try to find a pathway around uh, our uh, objections with the, um, with the Europeans. That didn't bear fruit. The administration continued to up the pressure um, and that's when the Iranians began, as those of us who know the region would have predicted, to act out in mm -hmm. military forms that led to these sort of small-scale tit-for-tat escalations that then, uh, you know, morphed into something more substantial. The Senate is about to consider a measure by Senator Tim Kaine uh, to put some limits on the president's war powers. Uh, war powers. Um, meaning he has to withdraw all troops. It's got 30 days to notify Congress or get all troops out. Um, having been there with President Clinton, with President Obama, and you talk in the book about in Somalia where the Congress stepped up to say, no, we want our troops out of Somalia. Stepped in, I would say. Stepped in, I would say, right? Yeah. yeah, right. So is this that Kane measure something you would support and you think it's you know, what the Senate ought to do? In this instance, yes. Uh, I, as one who spent her career in the executive branch, it, it, it sort of runs against my <laughs> instincts uh, to want to see, uh, you know, executive authorities right. ceded to uh, the Article I branch. <laughs> uh, but in this case, because the administration has approached Congress with such extraordinary disdain, uh, refusing to share information, refusing to provide uh, serious briefings, even uh, to the most uh, highly cleared members of Congress. Um, I was up on Capitol Hill last week and met with uh, members of the Democratic Caucus in you know, one of their large sessions. And the, the level of fury and frustration that they feel about their inability to just do their jobs and serve their constituents because they don't have the basic information that they are entitled to was just off the charts. Um, and it, it's not how the system is supposed to function. And when you add to that, you know, that this is an administration who's refused to provide witnesses and refused, refused to provide documents and it thumbs its nose at subpoenas and 
has now twice took us to the brink of open war with Iran without any authorization, this first time being when we were 10 minutes from striking, the second time being you know, last week. Uh, I think Congress has every reason to be deeply concerned. And there is no current legal authorization for a full-out <laughs> war with Iran. Technically, the president has the, um, the authority to respond to in, de in a defensive fashion to imminent threats, which is why this whole imminence debate is relevant. Turns out it appears there was not an imminent threat in the form that that is typically understood. But leaving that aside, and, and the Kane resolution is careful not to you know, prevent the president from acting in self-defense, it would if, if enacted, and it won't be, uh, even though it seems like there are enough Republican members, senators now, who are willing to vote for it such that it will pass the Senate by a narrow margin. It's not going to get, obviously, mm -hmm. the president's support. So uh, it won't become law. But I do think it, this is an extraordinary circumstance where it is the right thing. Right. To what extent is the central part of the problem the fact that um, you have a president who is totally inexperienced in foreign policy, plus a hothead, plus acts on impulses rather than reason or evidence. That uh, would be part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, kind of that is the problem, isn't it? And, and also maybe that not only is he lacks that experience, but the people around he has not put people around him who have much more or um, people that we can have confidence in or trust. But well, what do you think of his foreign policy team? <sighs> Secretary Pompeo. Let me start with the president. Uh, okay. Uh, recall at the convention his famous line, I alone can fix it. And his you know, repeated statements that he doesn't need the advice or the counsel of anybody else. It's only his view that matters. And that's, you know, when he says that, he's speaking honestly, it would seem. Uh, and that's a huge problem because he's, he, he's never done this before. He has literally no prior government experience, much less foreign policy experience. He hasn't served. Uh, and he could give a damn about facts and analysis. And he refuses to absorb information. You know, I don't care whether you read or you, you know, get oral briefings or whatever the method of, you know, imbibing information. But he seems utterly indifferent uh, to history, to uh, assessments, analysis, or you know, anything that's concrete, tangible, and would enable rational decision making. So that's a huge problem, and it's very hard to create a national security decision-making process that can correct for that. Having said that, I think we have suffered further because we have not even attempted to utilize the normal tools of national security decision-making. And one of the things that I hope comes through in Tough Love, as I talk about how we approached many of these challenges, particularly mm -hmm. in the uh, Obama administration, is that there is a set process for how things are supposed to be debated and analyzed and considered. And it doesn't necessarily yield the right answer, but you can be pretty sure that if you blow off the process, you're not going to get the right answer. And 
that process is meant to be bottom up. It's meant to involve experts. It's meant to involve, you know, classified information, open source information, the the, the knowledge and inputs of our experts, our, our ambassadors, and other um, diplomats and development experts and military personnel and intelligence personnel serving in the field. And you know, it comes through a deputies committee and a principals committee and a, hopefully, you know, a thoughtful set of options and recommendations provided to the president. None of that is happening. And it was particularly not happening, um, if I dare say, under John Bolton. I think that O'Brien is trying to reconstitute that. I don't know to the extent to which he's being successful. Uh, we read in the New York Times that it was his memo that included the Soleimani mm -hmm. kill option. I would not have signed that memo. Uh, and you don't give any president, but particularly this president, you know, a Chinese menu of, you know, things to choose from that you where the the risks and the consequences of the various options have not been fully analyzed. Um, so I'm, you know. I won't, just as a matter of principle, I'm not going to sit up here and uh, slag on individual members of the president's national security team, even though I have my own strong views about several of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I will say that you know, I think we are in a more precarious position than when we had very seasoned uh, experts in as Secretary of Defense, as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, and even as National Security Advisor, than mm -hmm. we are now, where you know many of these folks are green, or at least green in their role, uh, and m many of them come with a strong ideological bent rather than objectivity. Tough. Today's podcast with Susan Rice brought to you by the United Steelworkers, America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members in the United States and Canada. The steelworkers, good men and women of the steelworkers out there keeping America's remaining steel mills in business and working hard to bring manufacturing jobs back to American shores, all under the leadership of President Thomas Conway. We salute the steelworkers, thank them for the support of the podcast, and direct you for more information at usw.org. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. In the book, Tough Love, you talk about um, several of the successes of President Clinton, the Dayton Accords, President Obama, the Paris Accords, the, the Iran nuclear deal. You're also, you also talk about some of the things that did not go so well and are very honest about some of the things that, that why they didn't and what you learned. Um, quickly, just a couple of them. Let's start with Rwanda, 1994 with President Clinton. You went there, you saw the carnage. How is it that the, not only the United States, the entire world just did not act to stop the genocide? So I write about this experience. I was, my first job in government at age 28 was as a director on the National Security Council staff. That's the, the working level, policy expert level, the most junior level on the staff. And my portfolio was the United Nations and peacekeeping. This was before I later worked on Africa, both at the White House and at the State Department. But because Rwanda uh, housed a UN peacekeeping force and the peacekeeping mission was one of the big points of failure, uh, arguably in the context of the genocide and the decisions that the United States took as to how to deal with that peacekeeping mission was relevant to how uh, our lack of engagement unfolded. Um, it was a very formative experience for me. And I write in the book as somebody who really, at that stage in my career, I didn't have a voice in terms of policy making and decision making. Um, but I had a front row seat uh, watching this process. And um, you know, the, I start with Somalia in the book, because Somalia is really where the new Clinton administration you know, first uh, got burnt in global affairs, but in, but also in particular in Africa, and the um, the tragedy of Black Hawk Down in October of 1993, when, as you'll recall, we lost 18 Americans, um, and we saw images of bodies being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu, um, really defined or overshadowed decision-making in the early years of the Clinton administration. So I talk about Somalia and, and what, uh, how that transpired and what lessons I learned from that. Congress, as you mentioned in passing earlier, immediately after Somalia, a Democratic Congress, mandated that the Clinton administration, the President Clinton, withdraw all U.S. forces from Somalia within six months. Is a pretty extraordinary Mm -hmm. uh, exercise of congressional authority and rebuke of the executive. And that final withdrawal, which was rather precarious, was completed on March 31st, 1994. Six, seven days later, on April 6th, 
the airplane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi were shot down, and that was the start of the genocide. And so, again, I had a front row seat as, you know, we wrestled with extracting American diplomatic personnel out of a hot war zone uh, where the killing had already begun and where we then wrestled with decisions about what to do with the United Nations as contingents withdrew from the peacekeeping force. And, you know, do we call it genocide? And what do we do about hate radio? And all these series of decisions, which, as I write in the book, you know, we're, we took a series of successive decisions that in the moment seemed right in their individual judgments and added up to a colossal failure. And, but then you ask, well, what, what was the nature of the failure? The failure in my judgment, as I write, was not simply that the United States failed to intervene and that nobody in the international community intervened. The failure was that we never considered the question of whether or not to intervene or what action the United States might take militarily in the 100 days that really constituted the genocide or to help other people to intervene, we never had that discussion, that policy debate. And the crazy thing was that because of Somalia, it seemed inconceivable, not just to leaders in the administration, but to Congress, to the editorial boards. Nobody was calling the question as to whether or not the United States ought to intervene in that period. Hmm. And so as I look back on that as a policymaker, and even now more so with the benefit of hindsight, what I learned from Rwanda above all is that you cannot fail to engage the question. You may decide that the balance of interests and, and whatnot lead you not to intervene, but not to call the question. To me was the big uh, failure in Rwanda. And that led me to, some will argue maybe to be overly anal as national security advisor <laughs> about ensuring that when we had US forces in the field or when we were dealing with you know, these very difficult questions like Syria, you may not like the decisions we made on Syria or, or Libya or whatever it was, but I, you can be damn sure we spent a whole lot of time wrestling with the very critical questions of what to do and what not to do and why. There's so many, <laughs> we have four pages of notes and not that much time. And we're only in the Clinton administration. I know we're only in the Clinton administration. <laughs> but you did mention Libya, so there's, there's the whole thing of Libya which led up to Benghazi when you were, I believe, very unfairly roasted for your appearance on television right after the, what happened in Benghazi. Your mother warned you, <laughs> don't go on the Sunday TV shows. Uh, I guess you wish you'd listen to your mother. But what the hell happened? And why was it all on you? Well, first of all, the, the, the meta message of tough love is always listen to your mother. <laughs> and it, not just because of Benghazi. I mean, just the whole, the whole thing. And I, as I've you know, made my kids read this book and uh, <laughs> provide their feedback back, because it is, it is, as you mentioned, Bill, it is a really personal book. And it's personal not just about me, but about all of my family, including my kids. So it was important to me Absolutely. that they be, as now young adults, uh, 
willing to allow us or allow me to share it. But anyway, um, you know, what happened with Benghazi was I was um, asked on a Friday afternoon, if you recall, it was uh, Tuesday, I believe, September 11th, when the attack occurred on our, uh, our diplomatic compounds uh, in Benghazi. And the terrorists struck, and it came in the context of ongoing protests and, and assaults on other of our diplomatic facilities throughout mm -hmm. Africa, South Asia, and other parts of the Middle East. Um, on that Friday evening after uh, we, meaning the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, the CIA director, defense uh, secretary, all went to Andrews Air Force Base to receive the, the bodies of the fallen and to do the very uh, painful work of, of trying to, to console the families who are understandably inconsolable, um, I was asked if I would go on the Sunday shows and uh, explain you know, not only what we knew at the time about what had happened in Benghazi, but what had been happening broadly in, in the region and what this was about. Uh, also to preview the upcoming UN General Assembly session, which was you know, happening within 10 days time, as, and I was at that point UN ambassador. Um, and frankly, it was not my intention or plan to be going on the five Sunday shows. I was taking my kids to the Ohio State football game on Saturday. To They were going to play uh, mm. Berkeley. Mm. It was my first chance to take the kids to a Big Ten football game. Uh, and so I said, you know, well, is there anybody else who's available? What about Secretary Clinton? Blah, blah, blah. And she had been asked and, and declined, and I assume because... You know, she'd had, by any stretch of the imagination, a week from hell. Um, and I reluctantly agreed as, as someone who wasn't thinking about, you know, my weekend or my plans, but just thinking that, you know, this was a tough week for the team. I'd been asked to do something. It wasn't something I'd never done before. And uh, I agreed. But on that same Friday night as I'm... Uh, making my way home, I decided to stop by my mother's house. My mother was uh, a brilliant woman, extremely accomplished. Um, but she had recently been through her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and had a post-operative stroke. Um, and so she really wasn't uh, physically well. She was mentally still quite sharp and was recovering physically. And since I was living in New York, I always try to make a a point of, you know, as soon as I got back into town to, to, to go in and see how she was doing. And so I stopped by the house and uh, where she's in her kitchen as always with CNN blaring. And uh, she asked me what my weekend plans are. And I said, well, I'm taking the kids to Ohio State uh, tomorrow and then uh, I'm, I've agreed to go on all five of the Sunday shows. And she said, what? <laughs> I repeated myself and she said, why you? And I said, you know, what I've already just said to you. Um, and she said, I smell a rat. Don't do it. And I said, what are you talking about, Mom? I've done this, you know, many times before. This, it'll be fine. And, of course, it wasn't. 
<laughs> and she, you know, first of all, as my mom, she was thinking about me. And, you know, would this be something that could go awry for me? I wasn't thinking about myself. Um, and she also, having been around the block so many times with great experience and intuition, just had a sense that, you know, when you go out and you're in the public spotlight in the midst of a crisis and in a hot political environment, remember this is the, the height of the uh, re-election campaign, uh, that it wasn't going to end well. And uh, I didn't listen. <laughs> and she, to her credit, um, never really said, I told you so. She would just <laughs> smile and say, you know, but at the time, you gave what our intelligence said happened, correct? That's right. No, I mean, I didn't make this up. I, I <laughs> used and, and shared with the American people what was our best current information. And that came directly from the intelligence community. And I had confidence in the information. I wasn't just parroting it. I was reading the intelligence and the president's daily briefing every day. So on the Saturday before I went to Ohio State, I'd gotten my briefing, I'd seen the materials. What I was given to say on Sunday reflected what was in the intelligence on Saturday. Um, and yet, it turned out to be wrong in, long story short, one crucial respect. Then there were many iterations of their analysis. But at the end of the day, when everything came out in the wash, the one thing that I said that Sunday that turned out to be inaccurate was that there had not been demonstrations outside of our diplomatic compound in Benghazi. But in the context of the campaign and you know, uh, what I think at that point, looking back, was sort of a harbinger of the kind of politics we're now into intensively. I mean, by the way, Benghazi looks like patty cake compared to today's stuff. Um, but. You know, I, I was accused of being a liar. I was accused of being incompetent. You know, Congressman Pete King got up on te television and called for my resignation, and it just snowballed from there. And Susan Collins, who introduced you uh, as National Security Advisor, turned on you. Um, and yeah. I don't know whether she Not called to mention my, my, my friend Lindsey Graham. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and John McCain. And John but McCain. I've, John McCain, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with him in retrospect. I'm, I'm not. I've not uh, gotten there so with the others. Did it cost you the job of Secretary of State? No, not directly. Um, the I made the decision. Um, well, let me fill in the gaps here. So it snowballed, and it, you know, for from basically mid-September through the election in November, you know, I was being looped on not just. Fox, but CNN, MSNBC, all this, all these places. And my mother, you know, in her fragile state of health, was you know losing her mind because she couldn't turn off the television, and she was obsessed with it. But it was just eating her alive to have to watch her daughter's integrity being impugned and, and my intelligence and all of that. I write in the book also the how it really had very negative um, health consequences for our daughter for a period of time, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, you know, it just it snowballed, and so my assumption was that after the election, there wouldn't be anything else to still fight about, so it would you know eventually peter out. Well, t 
to my surprise, not only did it not peter out, it kind of got like new legs after the election. In President Obama's first post-election press conference, uh, you know, he just won, everybody's feeling good, and the one of the first questions he gets was about me. And you know, came from the vantage point of you know, Senator McCain and Senator Graham have said they'll do everything possible to prevent Susan Rice from becoming Secretary of State. And you know, Obama responded by first of all saying, I haven't made any decisions yet. But you, if you I have decide, not been nominated. It, no, not not even <laughs> like not even close to nominated. Um, but if I decide to nominate her, I will. And then he went into this very angry, uncharacteristically angry and robust defense. Um, and yet it just continued. And so by uh, early December, early mid-December, I decided, thinking both about my family, uh, but thinking frankly more than anything about the president's ability to pursue effectively his second term agenda coming out of the box. We had the fiscal cliff, we had immigration reform, and a number of other really important priorities. I, I believed with the democratically controlled Senate, and I think Dick Durbin validated this, I, I probably could have been confirmed. That wasn't the concern, but how long would it take? And how much time would it take? And at what cost to his agenda and to, to me and my family? Um, and so I talked to him and I talked to him family and I decided to withdraw my name from consideration. So I mean, I guess you could say it stemmed from that. It, you know, it wouldn't have been the same discussion barring that, but um, it turned out all right. I'm not complaining. I want to come to back to the book. You're pretty hard on yourself. You, you describe yourself in the book, okay? I'm quoting you in the book as uh, hard charging, hard-headed, brash but uh, no a bright smart but too brash knowledgeable but immature so, some of these are things that people said about you and you quoted aren't you being a little bit too hard on yourself and if particularly in light of if you could talk about just as closing up the challenges that you faced as a woman in your position as a mother as an african american um, so that's you had my, a lot to deal with. That's my description of my 33-year-old self. Oh. So, and and I, you know, I tried really hard in this book, um, to be honest, both with myself and with the reader. I mean, I've had this. I've had an extraordinary set of privileges to serve our country, starting at the age of 28 at the White House. And by 32, I was an assistant secretary of state responsible for an entire continent. And I was not only the youngest person to ever have been named a, a regional assistant secretary of state, but as you said, I was, uh, I'm a young, I was a woman, I was a breastfeeding mother. I'd just given birth three months ago to our, three months before to our, uh, our oldest child. Um, and I was an African-American woman in a, very predominantly white male uh, field at the time. And, but it was principally my youth and my relative inexperience compared to the people that I served with, which was the real challenge initially. So I'd come, after I did the two years as the director on the UN staff, uh, on, the, on the NSC staff for the UN, 
I was then named the, the senior director that's running the office at the, at the White House on Africa. And I did that for about uh, two and a half years. And so substantively, I was steeped in the issues. I knew the, 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 um, the brief well. I had the relationships um, within the interagency, and I had a close relationship with Secretary of State Albright and President Clinton from having worked with them closely. So I had all of that. What I didn't have was 30 years of serving in the, uh, the career foreign service. And I'd never been an ambassador. And the, these, those who were reporting directly to me were 20, 30 years my senior, predominantly white men who had worked their way through the ranks uh, in the State Department. And when I showed up, particularly you know, with my, you know, my son where in the State Department where I brought him in quite deliberately with frequency to breastfeed, they did not know what to make of me. <laughs> <coughs> and I get, I get that. And I had to, you know, I had to persuade them that I was worthy of this leadership role that I was in. Uh, and that, you know, I was somebody that if they didn't necessarily like in the first instance, instance that ultimately, hopefully, they could respect. And that took time and effort. And I made some mistakes along the way. Um, and I write about them in the book. And I write about how I learned and how I was very fortunate to have colleagues and, and, and friends and mentors who were willing to tell me when I was screwing up and help me to course correct. And so, you know, fast forward 20 years later, and you know, I'm in a, uh, a position of more responsibility and seniority. I, I think I, I don't have a problem with being frank and critical about you know, what I got right and what I got wrong and how I learned along the way. Um, and you know, there are, if you're kind enough to, to read the book, you'll, you'll see you know, there are more than the, the descriptions of myself go beyond that, but I, I'll, I'll own that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to rewrite history. So. Life lessons in tough love, not only for Susan Rice, but for uh, everyone else. Susan, thanks so much for being with us tonight. And that's it for today's podcast from the Hill Center with Ambassador Susan Rice. Thank you so much to Ambassador Rice, and also thank to all of you for joining us here on the podcast. And we do ask you again, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. We need your support, and this is free, and it's easy if you just go to wherever you go for podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Search for the Bill Press Pod. Click on subscribe and you are in. And uh, we also ask you to give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Boy, that really helps a lot. And just so you don't miss any podcast, please follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That way you'll get uh, any of my tweets during the day. Not as many as Donald Trump, but whenever I can. And you'll learn in advance about every new podcast. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay strong, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Bill Press Pod. <laughs>